This is a Scream Queen production. Crime Tuesday is going to make the million of you that suggested this case to me over the summer very happy because today we're talking about the Netflix documentary Girl in the Picture, which this is a story that I heard for the first time on My Favorite Murder years ago, but I somehow missed, or maybe it wasn't mentioned, I'm not sure, uh, the Michigan connection. So let's get into it. Shortly after midnight on April 25th, 1990, Three men traveling to Oklahoma City for business came upon a gruesome discovery. They just exited the I-35 off-ramp that would lead them to the local Motel 6 when one of the men spotted a high heel shoe lying in the middle of the road. A bit further up, they spotted something else. A young woman lying face down in the gutter, her limbs twitching wildly as her body convulsed. The men called 911 and first responders descended upon the scene. The gravely injured woman was rushed to the hospital as the Oklahoma City Police Department began their investigation. The petite blonde, who appeared to be in her early 20s, looked to be the victim of a hit-and-run. Scattered in the ditch were a Walkman with headphones, various grocery items, and a few pieces of a vehicle, a windshield wiper, a broken radio antenna, and some chips of red paint. It appeared that the young woman was returning to the Motel 6 with groceries from the nearby truck stop, listening to music as she walked, when she was run down and then left for dead. But was it an accident or an intentional act? To answer that question, authorities first had to figure out who the pretty young blonde, who might not make it through the night, was. While police questioned staff and patrons at the motel, as well as at the truck stop and the adjacent restaurant, Hospital staff tried to get any information they could from the victim, who was semi-conscious and repeatedly calling out, Daddy. She was in rough shape, but she had no broken bones or open injuries, which was rare for someone who'd been struck down by a vehicle on pavement. She was listed in stable but serious condition. It wasn't until the next morning that a disheveled man in faded jeans and sneakers, who looked old enough to be the Jane Doe's father, showed up at the hospital, claiming to be her husband. He identified himself as 41-year-old Clarence Hughes and his wife as 23-year-old Tanya Hughes. He said that they, along with their two-year-old son Michael, had traveled to Oklahoma City from Tulsa to see a doctor and were staying at the Motel 6 near where Tanya was hit. She'd left the night before to go get groceries, and Clarence had fallen asleep waiting for her to return. When he woke up in the morning and found that she was still not back, he began asking around, and a clerk at the truck stop told him about the woman who'd been hit by a car. Authorities at both the Oklahoma City Police Station and Presbyterian Hospital were relieved. Their Jane Doe mystery was solved. Except it wasn't, because everything that crusty old man told them was a lie. 
Her name wasn't Tanya Hughes. His name wasn't Clarence Hughes. They weren't married, and the little boy traveling with them wasn't their son. Through further investigation, authorities found that the young woman wasn't Tanya Hughes from Tulsa. She was Sharon Marshall from Georgia, and Clarence Hughes was really Warren Marshall. And he wasn't the young woman's husband. He was her father. But that wasn't quite right either. For the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, authorities embarked on a decades-long search that eventually led them to a small Detroit suburb and a story they wouldn't believe. By the time her past and the FBI caught up with her, the woman formerly known as Sandy Chipman was in her 60s, wheelchair-bound, on oxygen, and living in a tiny, cluttered trailer in Newport News, Virginia. She'd gone by half a dozen last names in her life and birthed just as many children. She was frail and had aged well beyond her years. A sad, sad existence. Karma, perhaps, for the sins of her youth. Sandy Chipman was born around 1950, the eldest of three children. Her father was a General Motors executive, and her mother was a housewife. Sandy was pretty and super smart. Her IQ was off the charts. She attended W.E. Groves High School in Beverly Hills, Michigan, a small suburb of Detroit with a population of about 10,000. There, she met fellow student Cliff Savakis, who was two years her senior. The two dated all throughout high school. Being older, Cliff graduated first, obviously. He took a few college classes, and then he dropped out right around the same time that Sandy was graduating. The two got married right after Sandy's graduation, and within a few months, Sandy was pregnant. The couple was excited about the baby, even though they were very, very young. But their happy family would have to wait, because Cliff was drafted into the Army and sent to Vietnam, which is where he was when his first child, a daughter named Suzanne, was born on September 9th, 1969. It would be six months before Cliff got to see and hold his baby daughter for the first time, but his family reunion was anything but joyous because his 19-year-old bride informed him that she'd been seeing someone else and she was pregnant. Cliff filed for divorce, but he and Sandy were still technically married when she gave birth to her second daughter, Allison, in 1970, so his name was on the original birth certificate and the baby was given his last name. Sandy gave birth to her third daughter, Amy, a year later in 1971. By that time, she was married to Allison and Amy's biological father, Dennis Brandenburg, the guy that she had been cheating on Cliff with, but that marriage didn't last long either. And soon, 23-year-old Sandy was a twice-divorced single mother with three children and a fourth on the way. Sandy's parents had left the Detroit area and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, so Sandy and her three girls followed them there for a fresh start. Sandy got on welfare, but she needed some supplemental income, so she turned to sex work while she was pregnant. By the time her fourth child, a boy she named Philip, was born in April of 1974, Sandy was also big time into drugs. Now, there are conflicting reports on what happened to baby Philip. Many accounts of this awful story claim that he met the same horrible fate as his sisters, but the truth is that Sandy never even took him home from the hospital. When Sandy gave birth to Philip on April 12, 1974, she was lodged at the same hospital as one of her co-workers from a local sewing company who'd given birth just two days prior and tragically lost her baby. 
Sandy was already overwhelmed with three children she didn't want and couldn't take care of, so she just gave the baby to her coworker, who adopted the little boy through a private adoption. This was all unknown information until, like, 2019. Philip was actually listed as a missing person because nobody knew what happened to him, and Sandy was a pathological liar. But at the age of 45, Philip came forward, contacted authorities, had his DNA tested, and it was proven that he was Sandy Brandenburg's long-lost son. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Back in 1974, North Carolina, Sandy rented a small trailer for herself and her three daughters. According to Sandy, a tornado ripped through the trailer park one night and flipped the trailer on its side. While Sandy and the kids survived the ordeal physically unscathed, she said it left her with severe PTSD that made it impossible for her to take care of her children. So, she says... She went to social services for help, but instead of offering her assistance with her mental health, they just took her kids from her and called her unfit. Now again, this is all according to Sandy. There are conflicting reports that her kids were taken away from her due to the drugs and prostitution. Either way, the 24-year-old mother of three was suddenly childless when she found herself sitting in a pew at a Charlotte church one afternoon crying, which is how she met a truck driver by the name of Brandon Williams. Brandon was a few years older than Sandy, tall, kind, soft-spoken. He sat beside her and he asked her what was wrong and how he could help her. She told him, whatever version of her story that she told him, and he said, hey, I've got an idea. We could get married so that I can help you get your kids back and help you raise them. And Sandy looked at this man she'd known for all of five minutes and said, Sounds good to me. So that's what they did. They got married, and in June of 1974, the state returned Sandy's children to her care. Now, that's Sandy's story on how she met Brandon Williams. Most news outlets report that she didn't meet him at a church. She met him at a bus stop while she was out hooking. By the time Sandy shacked up with Brandon, her parents had moved from North Carolina to Reading, Pennsylvania, and Sandy and her new family followed them again. Girl, take a hint. There's a reason they keep moving states away from you. Sandy quickly realized that Brandon wasn't the knight in shining armor he made himself out to be. Shocker. He was cruel, and he often threatened Sandy and the kids. He had a short temper, made her uneasy. But nonetheless, she moved herself and her babies all the way to Dallas, Texas with him when he asked her to, and that was the furthest that she'd ever been from home. In 1975, Sandy was arrested. According to her, it was for writing a bad check for diapers at 7-Eleven. According to her family, it was for solicitation. Whatever the charge, Sandy was sentenced to 30 days in jail, leaving her three daughters, who were five, four, and three years old, in the care of her husband, Brandon. When Sandy was released after a month behind bars, her family was just gone. Their apartment was empty, and Brandon and the girls were nowhere to be found. Now, here's another part of the story where accounts vary. Sandy said that she immediately went to the police station to report that her children had been kidnapped, but was told that since Brandon was her legal spouse, he had every right to take them, and it was a civil matter. According to the police, though, no report was ever filed. 
In fact, when Sandy's family, who was very familiar with her propensity for lying, contacted police themselves, they were told that Sandy was still heavily involved with the drugs and sex work scene and that she'd sold her eldest daughter, five-year-old Suzanne, to Brandon Williams, then taken the younger girls to Oklahoma to try to sell them also. Whichever is true, the two younger girls were found in a local orphanage, but Suzanne had always been Brandon's favorite. So he kept her. Whether Sandy tried to look for her daughter or not, which is hotly contested, it wouldn't have mattered because Brandon Williams didn't exist. His real name was Franklin Delano Floyd, and he was a violent fugitive wanted by authorities in several states. Franklin Delano Floyd was born in Barnesville, Georgia on June 17, 1943. He was the youngest of five children of Thomas and Della Floyd. Thomas was a cotton mill worker and a raging alcoholic who died just after Franklin's first birthday. Della Floyd was suddenly a 29-year-old single mother to five children, a cross she found too heavy to bear. So eventually the children wound up at the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Hapeville, Georgia, According to Franklin, he suffered unspeakable physical and sexual abuse at the hands of staff and older children. The abuse began when Franklin was just six years old and didn't end until he was kicked out of the home at age 16. Franklin lived with one of his older sisters in North Carolina for a bit before she, too, kicked him out. He then traveled to Indiana to look for his mother, who'd become a sex worker. She helped Franklin forge legal documents so that he could enlist in the Army, But he was only in about six months when the Army figured out that he was just a kid and booted him. He tried to find his mother again, but he was unable to track her down, so he began traveling the country as a drifter. Franklin Delano Floyd was arrested for the first time on February 19, 1960, when he was just 16 years old. He broke into a Sears after hours to steal a gun, then engaged in a shootout with police. He was shot in the stomach, but he survived following an emergency surgery that lasted several hours. In May of 1962, when he was just shy of 19 years old, Floyd was arrested for abducting a four-year-old girl from a Georgia bowling alley and sexually assaulting her. He was convicted of kidnapping and child molestation and sentenced to 10 to 20 years at Georgia State Prison. While in custody, Floyd escaped during a medical outing in 1963 and robbed a fucking bank. He was caught quickly and was sentenced to federal prison for the robbery. While in prison, Franklin suffered severe sexual and physical abuse at the hands of other inmates, as child molesters often do. In November of 1972, Floyd was released from prison and almost immediately got himself arrested again. In January of 1973, he abducted a woman from a gas station and attempted to sexually assault her, but she was able to escape. For some fucking reason, a judge allowed one of Floyd's friends to post bail, and they never saw him again. He disappeared, started calling himself Brandon Cleo Williams, got a job as a truck driver, and a year later crossed paths with the worst mother in the world, Sandy Chipman Savakis Brandenburg. Less than a year after that, he absconded with Sandy's five-year-old daughter. And what's worse, absolutely no one was looking for the sweet little girl with blonde hair and bright blue eyes. While Brandon Williams and Suzanne Savakis were never heard from again, 
Warren Marshall and his daughter Sharon Marshall settled in Forest Park, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta with about 20,000 residents. Sharon was beautiful, funny, smart, and she made a point of befriending and sticking up for the kids who were different and often targeted by bullies. She was in the Gifted program, on student council, and was featured in Who's Who Among American High School Students in 1985. She joined ROTC and rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel. She was ranked 26th out of the 350 students in her senior class, the class of 1986, and she was granted a full scholarship to Georgia Tech. She wanted to be an aerospace engineer. With credentials like that, no one suspected the hell that was Sharon's home life. It was just Sharon and her dad. She ironically told her friends, maybe even prophetically, um, told her friends that her mom had been hit by a car and killed when she was little. People thought that her dad was weird and strict, but no one ever got close enough to learn the awful truth. Shortly before graduation, Sharon confided in her best friend that she was pregnant. She said that her father wasn't going to let her go to college now, even though she had a full scholarship to Georgia Tech. Instead, he was taking her to Arizona to live and forcing her to give up her baby, a boy, for adoption. In January of 1988, a baby-faced blonde walked into the world-famous Mons Venus, a strip club in Tampa, Florida, looking for a job. Her name was Sharon Marshall, and she was 18 years old. Mons Venus was known as a high-class strip club and was frequented by celebrities, athletes, and musicians. Metallica and Van Halen were among its patrons. One of many rules the club's dancers were required to adhere to was that none of their husbands or boyfriends were allowed inside the club. Too often, they had trouble controlling their jealous tempers. But because of the marshals, they had to add an addendum to the policy. No dads allowed. Which, even in a fast and loose with the rules, people from all walks of life environment, like the one at Mons Venus, everyone thought that was fucking weird. Sharon's dad, Warren, obeyed the rule, technically. He drove her to the club every night, then sat in the parking lot until her shift was over. So even though he wasn't inside the building with Sharon, she always knew he was there. Unbeknownst to the staff at Mons Venus, Sharon was six months pregnant when they hired her. But much to the surprise of her new employers, her popularity with customers soared when it became visibly evident that she was pregnant. Because of course it did. So she danced right up until April 21st, 1988, the day that she gave birth to a little brown-haired, brown-eyed baby boy that she named Michael. She was back at work soon after. Sharon, the baby she adored so much, and her creepy-ass dad lived together in a tiny two-bedroom trailer in Pinellas Park, Florida, the Golden Lantern Trailer Park. They mostly kept to themselves, although they did befriend a teenage girl that babysat little Michael for them several times a week. The only thing people knew about the Marshalls was that Sharon loved her sweet little boy. She was often seen outside playing with him and taking him on walks. And that she had a super hot friend with a bright red Corvette. Cheryl Ann Camesso was born June 28, 1970. She and her family moved from New York to the Tampa area in the mid-1980s. 
Cheryl had a rough childhood, and at the age of 16, she dropped out of high school and began stripping, which is how she met Sharon Marshall. The two danced at Mons Venus together. For the most part, Sharon kept to herself at work. She was shy and quiet. She didn't really interact with a lot of her coworkers, didn't talk about herself or her home life, but she found a kindred spirit in Cheryl, and the two became fast friends which was a mistake because when Cheryl started visiting the Marshall home, Warren set his nasty sights on her. Cheryl had big dreams. She wanted to be rich and famous. She wanted to be in Playboy. Warren promised her he could make that happen. He knew people, had connections. So for that reason and that reason only, Cheryl entered into a sexual relationship with her friend Sharon's dad. To her, it was a means to an end. To Warren, it was a relationship. He had a hot young girlfriend who was younger than his daughter. And that's really all a pedophile could ask for, right? In March of 1989, Cheryl and Warren got into a fight on his boat that turned physical. He punched her in the face and started to choke her, but she escaped his grasp, jumped out of the boat, and swam the quarter mile to shore. To get back at Warren, Cheryl contacted social services and told them that Sharon, who received welfare, was earning more than $1,500 a week in unreported income as a new dancer. This prompted social services to call Sharon and tell her that her benefits had been canceled pending an investigation. That night, Warren sat in the parking lot of Mons Venus, not just waiting for Sharon to get done with her shift, but hoping to catch up with Cheryl. When he saw her, he jumped out of his car and attacked, punched her in the face in front of dozens of witnesses, and was trying to drag her into his car when security intervened, separated the two, and banished Warren from the property. A week later, Cheryl Camesso disappeared. It wasn't unusual for a dancer with no permanent roots to just take off without telling anyone, but given the circumstances, people were understandably suspicious. But... Not suspicious enough to call the police, as it turns out. By April of 1989, it was very evident that Sharon was once again pregnant. By this point, she'd been working at Mons Venus on and off for a year and a half, so the people there knew her and her creepy-ass dad as well as anyone ever did. Rumors flew that Warren was the father of Sharon's baby. At the same time, rumors persisted that Warren had done something to Cheryl Camesso, So Warren did the only logical thing. He sunk his boat, his prized possession, blew up his trailer, literally blew it up, and took off with 19-year-old Sharon and 2-year-old Michael. In June of 1989, so two months later, an odd-looking couple applied for a marriage license in New Orleans. 19-year-old Tanya Dawn Tadlock and 45-year-old Clarence Marcus Hughes were married on June 15, 1989. Two months later, in August, Tanya gave birth to a baby girl that she put up for adoption in New Orleans. That fall, the Hughes family found themselves in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That fall, the Hughes family found themselves in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tanya got a job at an establishment that was a far cry from the Mons Venus. If the Mons Venus was the creme brulee of strip clubs, Passions was a stale Oreo with the cream missing. Tanya 
Clarence, and little Michael lived in a tiny, shitty trailer in Tulsa, and Tanya stripped seven days a week while Clarence stayed home with Pookie, which was little Michael's nickname. The crew at Passions came to loathe Clarence Hughes, just as the crew at Mons Venus had loathed Warren Marshall. It was clear to all that he was off. He worked Sharon half to death and took every penny. He stalked her relentlessly, calling the club hourly to check in with her. She was always showing up at work with fresh bruises on her body. When her colleagues suggested that she leave her husband, she expressed fear that he would kill her, a statement that he confirmed on more than one occasion in front of multiple witnesses. Even with Clarence monitoring her every move, Tanya managed to strike up a relationship with a regular customer at Passions, a college student named Kevin Brown. The two would sneak out for dates while Clarence sat in the parking lot waiting for Tanya's shift to end. Things got serious between Tanya and Kevin, and he offered to take her and Michael away from their horrible life with Clarence Hughes. It took some convincing. Tanya was sure that Clarence would have them all killed. But in April of 1990... Tanya and Kevin began making real plans to escape. Before the month's end, however, Tanya was lying in a hospital bed with a serious head wound, the victim of a random hit and run. As he did with most people, Clarence Hughes raised the red flag alert with staff at the hospital where Tanya was being treated. His behavior was odd. His story didn't make sense, and Tanya's injuries weren't consistent with being hit by a car. Her worst and most concerning injury was a traumatic brain injury caused by blunt force trauma, which, sure, that can happen if you're hit by a car, you're going to hit your head on the car or the ground or both, but that was her only injury. No scrapes, cuts, just a few bruises, no broken bones, which made it look more like she'd been bludgeoned than run over. Hospital officials said as much when one of Tanya's friends from Passions made the four-hour drive from Tulsa to Oklahoma City to visit her. Tanya was in a coma, but she was progressively getting better and was starting to respond to voices and commands. On the evening of April 29th, Clarence Hughes visited his wife and spent several hours alone with her in her room. The following morning, her vitals started failing unexpectedly, and by the afternoon of April 30th, 1990, 20-year-old Tanya Hughes was dead, to the shock of the hospital staff who thought she was getting better. Clarence, who was not at the hospital when Tanya died, despite being notified that her condition was dire, ordered that his wife's organs be donated and her body be cremated, stat. Tanya's co-workers at Passions offered to pay for a funeral and to have the body taken back to Tulsa, to which Clarence eventually agreed. But here's something odd. In the five days between Tanya's accident and her death, Clarence had cleared out the trailer in Tulsa and rented an apartment in Oklahoma City. That apartment is where Child Protective Services went the day after Tanya's death, May 1st, 1990, after receiving a call from Clarence Hughes. He told them that his wife had just died and he needed someone to take care of two-year-old Michael for a week while he got his affairs in order which included attending Tanya's funeral in Tulsa and getting settled at his new apartment in Oklahoma City. But before Clarence settled his affairs, some important things happened. An autopsy was done on Tanya's body, and her death was ruled a homicide as the result of a violent, unusual, or unnatural death, 
and multiple people contacted Child Protective Services to express concern for Michael. Tanya's friends and co-workers shared with police and CPS that it was their belief Clarence found out Tanya was planning to leave him, so he killed her, and that Michael would be next if returned to Clarence's care. So the Juvenile Bureau of the District Attorney's Office filed a petition stating that Michael was a deprived child. They moved to make him a ward of the state and terminate Clarence's parental rights. Michael was placed with Ernest and Merle Bean of Choctaw, Oklahoma, in foster care, where he would remain for the next four years. At Tanya's funeral on May 4, 1990, Clarence Hughes arrived with armed bodyguards, threatened Tanya's friends, and ranted for several minutes about how Tanya had many buried secrets and that everyone needed to just bury her and let things be, just let it be. He then placed a single photo on her closed casket of a man in a suit with a little girl sitting in his lap before exiting the funeral home. If anyone had looked closely at that photo, they would have seen the truth behind Tanya's biggest secret of all. Just hours after the funeral, Clarence called the life insurance company where he'd taken out two life insurance policies totaling $80,000 just a couple months before his wife died. When asked for his social security number, Clarence provided a different number than the one they had on file for him. The second time he was asked, he gave them the social security number for Clarence Marcus Hughes. But the first time, he gave them a social security number belonging to one Franklin Delano Floyd. By the time U.S. Marshals arrived at the man's apartment, he was long gone. He knew what he'd done, and he knew it was all over for him. But they had to catch him first. And six weeks later, they did. While authorities were still building their case against the man of many names for the murder of his wife, which they believed an insurance payout to be the motive for, they didn't have to wait to arrest Franklin Delano Floyd because he had been a fugitive for over 17 years. Even with an old sentence to finish serving and a slew of new charges on the horizon, Floyd was adamant that he would not give up custody of his son, Michael. As soon as he got out, he was going after his son. The state and Michael's foster parents, of course, were like, absolutely fucking not. They set a rigorous set of guidelines and tasks for Floyd to accomplish and adhere to if he ever wanted his son back. And one of those was a paternity test. It took two years because Floyd fought the test every way he could, but the test was administered and it was determined that Floyd was not the father. And in December of 1992, when Michael was four and a half years old, Floyd's paternal rights were officially terminated, paving the way for Michael's foster parents to begin the adoption process, which they did. Franklin Delano Floyd was released from the Federal Correctional Facility in El Reno, Oklahoma, on March 30th, 1993, not quite three years after the death of Tanya Hughes, which authorities just could not find enough evidence to charge him with her murder, even though they fully believed he was guilty. Floyd immediately set about trying to regain custody of Michael, but he was not successful. So on September 12, 1994, an armed Franklin Delano Floyd stormed Meridian Elementary School in Choctaw, where six-year-old Michael was in first grade and he forced the principal at gunpoint to take him to Michael's classroom. 
Floyd then fled the school with both Michael and the principal. He drove deep into the woods, forced the principal out of his truck, and handcuffed him to a tree. He sped off with Michael, who was never seen again. The principal was eventually located and rescued. Multiple law enforcement agencies assisted in the search for Franklin Delano Floyd and Michael Hughes, including the FBI. Part of their investigation included interviewing Floyd's old acquaintances. One of those people was Jim Ennis, who'd worked with Floyd at an Oklahoma school in the 1970s. Only he didn't know him as Franklin Floyd or Warren Marshall or Clarence Hughes. He knew him as Trenton Davis. And he hadn't seen him in decades until very recently when Davis showed up at his door out of the blue asking for something he had left with Ennis years ago. An old photograph. One Ennis was unwilling to search for when Trenton Davis asked for it, but he found it for the FBI. The faces were younger than the agents had ever seen them, but they were unmistakable. And for the first time, they were closing in on the truth. They were shocked with a capital S-H-O-C-K-E-D when they realized that Michael Hughes wasn't the first child Floyd had kidnapped. Whatever this woman, Tanya, whoever, whatever her name was, Floyd had kidnapped her too. Before we start unraveling the truth to this super fucked up story, I do want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Magic Mind. As you guys know, I am constantly doing all of the things. I need to be able to wake up in the morning ready to be creative and productive every day. But as you all know, I've been very open about my struggles with anxiety and ADHD, which just both of those wreak havoc on focus, creativity, productivity. I know that a lot of you have some of those same struggles, so I want to tell you about something that's really been helping me stay on track, stay focused, and just feel better all around, quite honestly. As the creator of Magic Mind James Bashara puts it, athletes have Gatorade and now creators have Creatorade. <laughs> Magic Mind is a little shot of awesome that you can drink with or in place of your morning coffee or tea. It comes in individual two-ounce bottles, so it's easy to take with you on the go and super easy to add to your morning routine. The effects start to kick in pretty quickly, um, and then I am able to go about my day dialed in, focused, and energized. Now, I'm an insomniac who doesn't drink coffee, so energized is not a feeling that I'm used to. The cute little individual bottles tout the following benefits. Gives you energy. Helps you relax. Keeps you focused. Makes you happy. Like, if I could conjure up a magic elixir that would help improve my overall situation just in general, those are the exact things I would ask for. And Magic Mind has done it. So even on the days that I wake up with a million things to do, which, let's face it, that's every day for me, the tasks don't feel as daunting and I don't feel as overwhelmed because I know that I'll have the energy and the focus I need to get it all done. I'm not a coffee drinker or energy drink drinker, but if you are and maybe a little worried about the toll all of that caffeine is taking on your heart and your health, give Magic Mind a try. It's made from good quality ingredients like matcha, nootropics, and adaptogens. I'm especially fond of the ashwagandha and rhodiola rosea, which work together to decrease stress and anxiety by lowering your cortisol levels. And who's not riddled with stress and anxiety these days? I, listen, 
If someone told me that there was a little bottle of magic potion I could drink every morning that would help with my energy levels and help keep my anxiety and ADHD in check, I would do it in a heartbeat. And that's what I'm telling you today. This is what Magic Mind has done for me. So uh, maybe you might want to give it a try and at a discount even. Go to magicmind.co slash so dead. That's magicmind.co, no M at the end, just .co, slash so dead, and use code so dead 20 to save 20% off a single purchase or 40% off a subscription. 40%. The 40% off is only good for 10 days, so get right on top of that, Rose. Again, magicmind.co slash so dead and use promo code so dead 20 for 20% off a single purchase or 40% off a subscription purchase. And Magic Mind has a money back guarantee, so your purchase is worry free. All right, let's get back to today's nightmare. Franklin Delano Floyd was arrested in Louisville, Kentucky on November 9th, 1994, two months after the kidnapping at the school. But little Michael was nowhere to be found, and Floyd refused to talk. When news of the shocking kidnapping hit the airwaves following Floyd's capture, complete with details of Michael's mother's bizarre death a few years earlier, a woman in Georgia recognized the photo of the pretty blonde that flashed across her TV screen. It was her daughter's best friend from high school. So she contacted her daughter in California and told her what she'd seen. The woman was heartbroken, but also confused. So she contacted the FBI to let them know that the woman's name wasn't Tanya Hughes. It was Sharon Marshall. And the man they identified as Franklin Delano Floyd wasn't her husband. He was her dad. But that wasn't quite right either. The truth was still another whole decade from being revealed. But another horrifying secret would soon reveal itself. In 1995, while Floyd was behind bars on kidnapping charges, a Florida landscaper found the skeletal remains of what was determined to be a young woman just off I-275 in Pinellas County. It was determined that she'd been beaten and shot twice in the head, but they were unable to determine her identity, so they dubbed her the I-275 Jane Doe. Also in 1995, A mechanic in Kansas purchased a truck at a police auction, and he found a large envelope full of photos stuffed between the truck bed and the gas tank. The nearly 100 photos were made up of the stuff of nightmares. A woman bound and beaten, a little girl from about the age of four up through her teen years being sexually abused. The photos were turned over to authorities who researched the history of the truck and found that it had been stolen by Franklin Delano Floyd while he was on the lam following Michael's kidnapping. So they knew that the young girl in the pictures was their Tanya Hughes, Sharon Marshall, and through further investigation, they identified the woman who was beaten and bound as Sharon Marshall's old friend from Mons Venus, 18-year-old Cheryl Ann Camesso. Floyd was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of Cheryl Camesso, and because the murder took place in Florida, he was sentenced to death. He's been on death row for about 20 years now, so, like, anytime. Like, just let's, let's get it over with. But wait, there's more. 
In 2014, the notoriously difficult prisoner agreed to talk with FBI agents. Over the course of an interview that spanned multiple days, Floyd finally gave up his biggest secrets. He told them that Michael Hughes was dead, that he'd shot him twice in the back of the head the same day that he kidnapped him and then dumped his body along I-35. Authorities searched the area, but Michael's remains were never found. Floyd also told them that the real name of the woman he raised as his daughter, then married when she came of age, was Suzanne Savakis. She was the daughter of a sex worker he'd married in North Carolina back in the 70s. The FBI was quickly able to verify this information due to the superior sleuthing of one Lieutenant Detective Sarah Krebs of the Michigan State Police, who I have actually met. She came into my store and gave me my um, award for the Missing in Michigan activist this year. She's very, very nice. So it was kind of cool to see her name in these reports pop up. Agents traveled to Detroit to talk with Suzanne's biological father, Cliff Savakis, and to Virginia to question her biological mother, whose name was now Sandra Willett. Cliff was shocked to learn of the horrific life and death that his eldest daughter had endured. Back in 1975, when Child Protective Services took Sandy's three girls from her, they contacted Cliff. He was Suzanne's biological father, and he was still Allison's legal father. CPS wanted to keep all three girls together, and Cliff, who was 23, single, unemployed, living with his parents, and dealing with major PTSD from his time in Vietnam, just wasn't up to that task. So he relinquished his rights, and he never heard another word about Suzanne until the FBI came knocking 40 years later, and he was just devastated. Sandy, she's a bit of a different story. Her version of events contradicts pretty much all of the facts of the case. She was a good mom who loved her daughters, but was mentally unstable and married a bad man. She tried to find Suzanne, but the police wouldn't help her. The official report is that she was a drug-addicted sex worker who tried to sell all three of her daughters, but was only successful in pawning off Suzanne. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but I'm not inclined to believe that she really put any effort into finding her daughter, and I'll tell you why. In 2004, award-winning investigative journalist Matt Burbeck published a book called A Beautiful Child about the life and death of Suzanne Savakis. Although at that time, her true identity still had not been discovered, nor had little Michael's fate. In 2005, the journalist was contacted by a woman who'd read the book and realized that the infant daughter she'd adopted from New Orleans in 1989 was probably the baby girl that Suzanne gave up for adoption. DNA tests would prove that the girl, Megan, was in fact Suzanne's youngest child. But again, at that time... She was still Sharon Marshall with a big question mark over her true identity. So Megan knew who her birth mom was, kind of, and she knew what had happened to her and to her brother, Michael. Um, But she still didn't know the true identity of the woman that gave birth to her. After Sharon's true identity was revealed as that of Suzanne Savakis, Megan connected with Cliff Savakis, her biological grandfather. and. It seems like they've got a pretty good relationship at this point, at least according to the Netflix documentary. But back to Sandy. Nobody who's talked to Sandy about what happened to Suzanne gets good vibes from her. She reacted with little emotion when she was first contacted by the FBI and told about what happened to her daughter. 
She was uninterested in meeting with her granddaughter when Megan and her adoptive mom contacted her. Not exactly the response you'd expect from a woman who was heartbroken over losing her daughter. So I I just really don't know. I don't know what to think about Sandy, but I'm definitely not Team Sandy. So, yeah. In 2017, author Matt Burbeck and Suzanne's daughter Megan teamed up to replace her headstone at a Tulsa cemetery, which for decades simply read, Tanya. It now displays her real, true name. And that is the wild story of the girl in the picture. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My primary sources for today's episodes were Matt Burbeck's books, A Beautiful Child and the sequel, Finding Sharon, um, as well as the Netflix special, Girl in the Picture, which is based on Matt's books. So really, all credit to Matt for his tireless work on this one. I did fill in a few gaps and blanks with info from Find a Grave and good old Wikipedia, but for the most part, this all came from his work. And, uh... Yeah, I think we're going to skip the liquid cheese for this week because quite honestly, I'm sick of the sound of my own voice right now. But (laughs) another new episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. And until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 